December 1914. The Western world was in the grip of a waking nightmare. Multinational forces have confronted one another across more than 40,000 kilometers of Europe. This war, unlike so many in the past, would be more about attrition than a battlefield victory. Both sides literally dug themselves into the icy gumbo of mud and filth as close as 30 meters from the enemy. The proximity bred a new kind of gallows humor, shouting across the line at the enemy. When a stray bullet whizzed by, one of the targets might taunt, missed, or a little to the left. On Christmas Eve, a fresh snow began to cover much of the front. Soon after, Private H. Scrutton of Essex Regiment wrote of what he described as an exciting incident. It began with a voice calling out across no man's land. From our trenches, good morning, Fritz. No answer. Good morning, Fritz. Still no answer. Good morning, Fritz. From the German trenches, good morning. From our trench, how are you? All right. Come over here, Fritz. No, if I come, I get shot. No, you won't. Come on. No, you come halfway and I meet you. All right. One of our fellows thereupon stuffed his pocket with cigarettes and got over the trench. The German got over his trench, and right enough they met halfway and shook hands. Fritz taking the cigarettes and giving cheese in exchange. This remarkable scene was played out in many places, in many ways, across enemy lines. So began the remarkable Christmas truce of 1914. For many, it was a chance to collect and bury their dead with the permission of the enemy. For others, it was a chance to swap food, cigarettes, gossip, and souvenirs. Several letters record that a soccer game was organized among the warring sides. One soldier wrote of a German playing God Save the King on his harmonica. While the truce was widespread, it was by no means universal. Pat Collard wrote his parents of that day. Perhaps you read of the conversation on Christmas Day between us and the Germans. It's all lies. The sniping went on just the same. In fact, our captain was wounded. So don't believe what you see in the papers. But it did happen. And though the truce was difficult to start, it proved much trickier to stop. In some places, despite orders to end the truce, neither side fired upon the other. Many French and German troops who'd engaged in the truce were replaced. Where the terms were much clearer, the fighting began almost immediately. A lance corporal with the Royal Engineers wrote that as soon as the truce had lifted, the enemy attacked. We had found that our pals of the previous two days had tried to rush our position, but they got caught up as usual. And I believe the next morning the ground where we had been so chummy and where Germans had wished us a Merry Christmas, was now covered with their dead.
the truce caused excitement, conflict, and confusion back home. Some rejoiced that peace could break out in the unlikeliest place. Others, like an anonymous writer to the Aberdeen Daily Journal, were more scolding. Fie on ye Scotsman. There's not much of the boasted Highland pride left in you when you would sell it for a German souvenir. Up the ranks, the hierarchy on both sides were a little less melodious, but no less blunt. Troops on both sides were warned by commanders that there would be no more fraternizing. Germans were warned that offenders would be shot. Few argue that a frontline soldier can't fight as effectively when he feels friendship or sympathy towards the enemy. As did Rifleman C.H. Brazier, who met some 30 Germans during the truce and found them quite nice fellows. Another Allied soldier quoted a member of the Saxon regiment as saying they didn't want war and thought the Kaiser quite in the wrong. Peace would not break out again until November 11, 1918. The idea of war would be more tightly controlled. My name is Terry O'Reilly. So what's that got to do with the modern craft of persuasion? Everything. Where soldiers, statesfolk, and citizens aren't stirred by a common passion, the powers that be are finding more modern, more ingenious ways of selling war in the age of persuasion. I want chicken. I want liver. I want a bottle of Coca-Cola, Sonny. That's a spicy meatball. Hey, great. A toothpaste should fight tapping. I can't believe I ate that all. Spacious cabin. Attractively decorated. Air-conditioned but draft-free. Terry O'Reilly and the Age of Persuasion. There you go again. You may have seen the recent Canadian Forces recruiting ads. Stark images of an air crew and a ground team on snowmobiles race across the snow to the site of an airline crash where terrified survivors huddle. A graphic reads, fight fear. A crew of a freighter desperately jettisoned cargo as a forces ship approaches. In time, armed troops board the ship. There's a press conference. Small wrapped packages of contraband are displayed for reporters. Fight chaos. Rescue teams reach the cold, frightened survivors, providing hurried attention and swift evacuation. Fight distress. We see planes, helicopters, tracking doodads, a sub, a transport, a fighter jet. Then, an invitation to fight with the Canadian forces. After nearly 30 years in the business, there are only two advertising categories that scare me. One is feminine hygiene. The other is military recruitment. To begin with, I find these new forces recruiting ads to be very well done. Yet they're drawing some fire of their own. They show forces responding to domestic situations, but not to war. It's far more intense, far grittier than the career lifestyle recruiting ads of the not-so-recent past. It's 
It's not like any other job. Ours is a learning experience. It's technology. Opportunity. Teamwork. We're all across Canada. Around the world. Making a difference. Think about it. It just could be the challenge you're up for. Strong. Proud. Today's Canadian Forces. A message from the Government of Canada. Everything about that ad screams peacetime. A pitch to join the always challenging, sometimes dangerous, but rarely life-threatening forces of a pre-9-11 world. In 2007, the forces released other TV ads that did show war and fighting and a homemade bomb laced with nails taped to a cell phone detonating device. It showed Canadian troops breaking down a door and rescuing someone in Afghanistan and discharging weapons. Among its critics, one MP called the ads warmongering. With respect, I call them honest. I'd go so far as to say it isn't fair or honest or even ethical to suggest that danger to one's life isn't part of the deal when one signs up. Which is why I would find a recruiting brief so intimidating. Those creating successful recruiting ads must bear the burden of knowing their work attracted young people to put their lives on the line. And the reason the latest ads avoid Afghanistan? Perhaps it's because recruiting ads aren't just about persuading potential recruits. They're also speaking to the rest of Canada, to whom images of war are becoming less palatable with each new day. In Napoleonic times, recruiting was a little different. In marketing terms, the reason why was a little less complicated. Recruiters working for His Majesty would offer the King's shilling to recruits. Often, they'd also offer some strong drink and promises of a soft bed, three squares, sunshine, and lollipops. Though suckers might be a better word. Recruits signed up for the work, any work, or to escape their family, or the law, or both. They didn't belong to the king until sworn in by a justice of the peace. Until then, a recruit could often squirm out of the deal by bribing his recruiter, but the price, for most, was out of reach. In time, where bribery and coercion fell short, recruiters began to embrace the tools of modern persuasion. In 1812, when the war hawks of the U.S. Congress set out to claim Canada once and for all, soldiers in upstate New York would receive barrels of meat stamped U.S. Legend has it that the soldiers would joke that it stood for Uncle Sam, after the meat supplier, Sam Wilson, of Troy, New York. And from that, the legend grew. Now, halt right there for a moment. More than a century later, as soldiers dug into their trenches, Britain's Minister of Defense, Lord Kitchener, became Britain's Secretary of State for War. Kitchener, once a key player in the Boer War, was already known, depending who you ask, as a statesman, a butcher, a genius, and a buffoon. Using the promotional tools of the time, 
an enlistment poster was designed by a chap called Alfred Leet and issued with the dour mug of Lord Kitchener pointing at you, yes you, over the words, wants you. Three years later, American artist James Montgomery Flagg... Hello? Did you make that up? No, ma'am. ...used the Kitchener poster as an, hmm, what's the word? Homage to his now iconic recruiting poster, Uncle Sam Wants You. Canadian posters appealed to one's love of king and country, though with more tactical approaches. One poster showed a pay chart. Heck, a sergeant could scoop a tidy buck fifty a day. That's about 27 of today's dollars. His wife could collect 25 clams a month in separation pay. That would be 450 clams today. Another poster appealed directly to the women of Canada. To the women of Canada, do you realize that the one word, go, from you may send another man to fight for our king and country? When the war is over and someone asks your husband or son what he did in the Great War, is he to hang his head because you would not let him go? Won't you help send a man to enlist today? Yet, like mechanized warfare, the craft of persuasion was in its infancy. But another war would be along soon enough. And this time, the might of modern advertising would be ready. My name is Terry O'Reilly, and this is the Age of Persuasion. Our comrades in arms. In 1939, Canada, like so much of the world, experienced the first war on radio. And the newfangled Canadian Broadcasting Corporation did its part. This program, from 1942, tried to acclimatize men to the idea of, wait for it, dames in the RCAF. Holy smoke, Jones, look. This story, they're going to have women in the RCAF. What? Women in the RCAF? Well, I'm not going to have them running around my station cluttering up the place. Oh, I don't know, sir. I saw a lot of them while I was over in Britain. They're damn deficient. They relieved a lot of men from work that women stuff anyway. Clerking and typing and that sort of thing. Well, you may be right. But they'll have to show me their abuse in the Air Force before I'll believe it. Women. <laughs> Ever so subtly... The national broadcaster introduced clodhoppers like that guy to real women who'd stepped up to do their part in the workforce. My name is A.W. Nellie Walsh of Vancouver. I've been in the Air Force 10 months as a mechanic helper at Number 6 Service Flying Training School at Dunville. I help the lads you don't hear much about, the maintenance men who keep them flying. Our first concern is with the defense of Canada. To be helpful to others, we must ourselves be strong, secure, and united. In his book, Perfect Pitch, author John Steele suggests that speeches play an enormous part in any war effort. In World War II, Britain had Churchill. Later came the States and FDR. Canada, meanwhile, found motivation in spite of the oratory of Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King. This morning, these measures were supplemented by others including the proclamation of the Defense of Canada regulations. King was a shameless self-promoter who hated advertising. 
Still, the government of Canada did mobilize the modern tools of persuasion to manage the war effort. Outside of the CBC, the National Film Board did its part. As Rob Girlsbeck reported in Marketing Magazine, Canada's government, meanwhile, launched campaigns to help sectors of the economy affected by the war. Ads were created for the U.S. market to inform our American friends that, though the Nazis might march over the pole at any minute, Canada was still a swell place to vacation. Another campaign urged Canadians to serve their country by eating tinned lobster to support an industry badly hurt by the loss of European sales. Seven months after the campaign began, tinned lobster sales had climbed 400%. Prime Minister King, meanwhile, had hoped to ban alcohol to help the war effort. But when he couldn't sell that, he settled for a wartime ban on beer, wine and liquor advertising. Stateside, the marriage of persuasion and war took on a much more powerful dimension. America's most popular radio programs joined up, and so did Hollywood. One of its staples was the film series, Why We Fight, narrated here by Canadian-born Walter Houston. Causes and events leading up to our entry into the war. Well, what are the causes? Why are we Americans on the march? In 1942, a group of men descended on Washington armed with big black pencils and layout pads. Soon, they would change the relationship between marketing and war. Among them was the legendary Leo Burnett, who would later describe their mission thus. They didn't try to explain the ad business to anybody. They just said, to every ear that would listen, here we are. What needs doing that can be done by people with our shaped heads? So was born the War Advertising Council, whose ranks, over the years, would include so many of the giants of advertising, including Burnett, David Ogilvy, and Fairfax Cone. Working for the government and for non-profit causes, the War Council would create classic campaigns promoting war bonds, enlistment, blood donations, and fat drives. When they needed to promote the role of women in the workforce, they created Rosie the Riveter, who kept the country well assembled while men were off fighting. When alarms went up that the forests of the Pacific coast might be set ablaze by Japanese submarines, the Ad Council created Smokey the Bear to promote vigilance. Only you can prevent forest fires. After 1945, the War Advertising Council became the Ad Council, responsible for so many of the great public service campaigns of the past generations. They would go on to create the famous crash test dummies to promote seatbelt use, the crying Indian to fight littering. They built campaigns on lines that would resonate throughout the culture, including This Is Your Brain on Drugs and Friends Don't Let Friends Drive Drunk and they've created a long-running campaign for the United Negro College Fund with its famous signature line, because a mind is a terrible thing to waste. A line mangled by a U.S. Vice President who will remain nameless into, what a waste it is to lose one's mind. 
It's interesting to note that so many in the ad business through the 50s and 60s were war vets. The fallout from that, wait, that's a pun, is the infusion of military terminology in modern advertising since World War II with campaigns, tactics, objectives, and yes, enemies. The evolution of America's War Advertising Council to the Ad Council was symbolic of a split that occurred throughout the culture. In a single generation, the same forces of persuasion that helped win wars would be used to question them. By the latter half of the 20th century, the picture of men and women sprinting to the call of their country was no longer a gimme. In the 60s, the United States and the world learned a brutal 10,000-day lesson about changing times. Questions left swirling in the Gulf of Tonkin and answers buried within four dozen volumes of the Pentagon Papers smudged the line that had defined good and bad, right and wrong, just and unjust, in times of war. On January 21, 1977, during his first full day as president, Jimmy Carter pardoned the many thousands who dodged the Vietnam draft in an effort to heal his nation's wounds. Controlling the idea of a war wasn't what it was in the days of William Randolph Hearst. In 1898, when the great artist Frederick Remington cabled Hearst from Cuba that there was no war for him to sketch, Hearst replied, Please remain. You furnish the pictures, and I will furnish the war. Military recruiting in the post-9-11 world is predictably tricky, and surprisingly varied in its approaches depending on the country. Where Canada invites recruits to fight fear, chaos, and distress, the U.S. Army taps the emotional benefit of strength. There's strong, and then there's Army strong. It is not just the strength to obey, but the strength to command. Not just strength in numbers, the strength of brothers. Not just the strength to lift, the strength to raise. Not just the strength to get yourself over, the strength to get over yourself. Like Canada's latest recruiting ads, the Army Strong campaign makes nary a mention of life in harm's way. The Russian Army follows a different strategy, showing a young man, a soldier, offering his sweetheart flowers and enjoying a night out. A lifestyle he can afford on Army pay. Estonia's Scouts Battalion appeals to the emotion of respect. A young man in civvies knocks over a line of motorcycles belonging to a bike gang. When the members see the insignia patch he's wearing, they apologize to him. Most intriguing to me are ads for the Swedish army. One shows a young man and woman in the center of a giant maze putting together a miniature puzzle, a replica of the maze they're in. Two attack dogs are finding their way to them. Working coolly, the two solve the puzzle just in time, and glass doors close. 
keeping the dogs away. In another, a woman in a large glass box hurries to solve a Rubik's Cube as sand quickly buries her. On completing the cube, the sand stops. In both cases, the ads ask, do you have what it takes to be an officer? The primal instincts that lead to war may be unchanging, but the persuasive paths that lead to soldiering come from many directions. There was a time when war was not that tough to sell. Soldiering might mean survival to the working class and honor for the well-to-do. The call to king and country mobilized thousands in this country's earliest years. But that has changed. Historian Jack Granitstein noted that there might be something noble or utterly foolish about Canada's tradition of fighting wars, often someone else's wars, for the relative abstractions of justice and freedom. A tradition very much on the minds of the young men and women who choose to serve. The reality is, in Canada and many other lands, war is an increasingly difficult idea for nations to sell to their people. Recruiting soldiers has, for those in my profession, become a tricky, even daunting brief. Is there a tougher idea to market than war? I think so. Could you even imagine taking all the time, effort, sacrifice, skill, emotion and talent used to wage war and using it to wage peace? Despite all good intentions, that might remain the toughest sell of all in the Age of Persuasion. The Age of Persuasion is created and written by Terry O'Reilly and Mike Tennant. Two red-blooded Canadians who test their limits of guts and endurance by watching recruiting ads. Don't laugh. Wow, that's tougher than it looks. Ask yourself, have you got the fell-out-of-bed wardrobe, the glacier fast reflexes, the cranial warehouse of culinary cunning that it takes to be? Engineer Keith Oman? Title theme by The Few, The Proud, and by Ari Posner and Ian Lefevre. The Age of Persuasion is produced for CBC Radio by Pirate Toronto.